This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Pagan Ampage Pagan, and on today's show, I'm hoping to answer a question about movies and books and music and how they affect our brains. How do these things produce experiences that engage our imaginations and can feel totally real? How can these artificial creations give us some of our most vivid experiences and most lasting memories? So much so that they reshape our emotions and worldviews. Now, to help me answer this question, I have with me Professor Jeffrey Martin Zacks. He is the author of the book Flicker Your Brain on Movies. Uh, hi, my name is Jeff Zacks. I'm a professor of psychological and brain sciences and radiology at Washington University in St. Louis. And my lab studies how people find their way around the everyday world, represent where they are, what's happening around them, and how that can go wrong in various kinds of brain disorders. And so that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. And I just wanted to talk to you about how the brain kind of works when it comes in touch with popular culture and why, why movies, why certain songs, why books, for example, affect us in such a way that we merge it with real life. And so I was wondering if you could start off by just telling us what happens when we sit down to watch a movie and how do we transition from real life to getting lost in this make-believe world? Yeah, that's a great way of framing it. Um, And the first and most powerful heuristic thing to keep in mind is that when you sit down in a movie theater, you don't swap out the brain that you had in the, in the lobby for a new one. Your brain evolved over about 400 million years to get you and our brother and sister animals around in a pretty complicated world. And movies have been around for about 115 years, and there's been no significant biological evolution over those times. So the brain that we evolved to deal with living in an environment with objects and other entities of particular types in social groups of modest size, that's the brain that we bring into the theater. Um, and so it's not that media, that, that our brains evolved to deal with media, it's that media able to evolve with our brain. Sorry, that media evolved to deal with Oh, damn. Brains. So when I tell people I'm going to watch that trashy rom-com and I'm switching off my brain, it's not real. It means I actually love that trashy rom-com. Sorry, my friend. <laughs> and and trashy rom coms are like um, are like the junk food, and I, I don't mean that disparagingly. Like I, I'm not making a value judgment about them, but they're like the junk food of um, our psychology, which is to say, these are highly engineered things that push all of our buttons. So in the same way that you know, so we evolved based on very real evolutionary pressures, tastes that get us to seek out fats and sugars, right? And so you sit me down in front of, um, in front of a, you know, a package of overproduced pastries, and that object is highly engineered to interact with my evolved nervous system in a particular way. And things like romantic comedies, the overexpression of, facial emotion, the use of um, uh, background music cues and, and 
music and, and, and background auditory cues and music. These are all things that take stuff that's really real in our evolved world and just exaggerate it to the nth degree. So what you're saying is that the very same brain mechanisms are at play when we experience real life and when we experience a movie. Yeah, absolutely. So, so sticking with rom-coms, let me take one example. Um, the experience of emotion depends directly and powerfully on uh, a pair of visual processing streams that are wired up to uh, our systems for regulating our affect. Um, so one of these streams, uh, I, I call this a, this um, mechanism, the mirror rule. It, it basically says if you see an, another human being doing something, you tend to mirror that activity. So if someone raises up their hand to wave, you tend to wave back. If, some, if the people around you are smiling, you'll tend to smile. If they're frowning, you tend to frown. So that's a powerful mechanism for controlling your behavior. Another one is what I call the success rule. The technical term for it in psychology is operant conditioning. And it just says, do what tended to work in similar situations in the past. So we have these learning mechanisms that, you know, if a stimulus pops up and we engage in a behavior and things work out well, that stimulus is going to tend to be reinforced. We're more likely to do it the next time. I'm assuming that's why we kind of flinch when someone gets punched in the face in a film. Yes, but actually, when it turns out flinching, there's a there's another mechanism that's that's even more powerful. Let me come back to that one. So just just to tie up on the emotional response, both of these things, the mirror rule and the and the success rule, um, they feed into this process that says if your body is in a pose that's associated with a particular emotion, especially your face, then turn on the rest of that emotion program. So it. You know, there's this this corny saying that, you know, if you smile, you'll feel better. Well, it turns out that's actually true. And if you just get people to smile or frown by any means, even if they don't realize that they're doing it, that will affect their emotion. And that's adaptive. It evolved over a long period of time because emotions are these integrated programs that um, that integrate our decision-making and our perception with our action control systems. And so if you fire up one part of the program, it's a good idea to activate the rest of it. So now I walk into this movie and, you know, there's a face sitting, uh, you know, 20 feet high on the screen and it's smiling and the person's waving at me. I'm going to tend to want to pose my body in a way that's compatible with that. And that's just going to make me feel better. And if that person is bawling buckets, then conversely, that's going to take tend to make me feel bad. Okay, so I get that when we're watching a rom-com. We have these romantic notions ourselves. We want to put ourselves in the shoes of someone who's happy and in love. But what about when it comes to something that's sheer, just complete and utter fantasy? When it's Star Wars, when it's... And I know it's rooted in the yeah. same thing. I mean, I mean, there's the hero's journey and all of that stuff. But But surely... But surely there's at some point we realize that's completely fake and made up. Yeah, but none of these mechanisms I was describing depend on that inferential, smart, top-down kind of processing. These things are fast, they're automatic, um, and they're highly robust against your reflective cognition. Now, we can also... Reason. Yeah, we can also experience powerful emotions via that top-down pathway. And some films work that way. You know, 
when you think about a movie like Sophie's Choice, you know, the, this awful, horrible, critical scene, um, is if you look at what's happening on the screen, it's pretty toned down, but it's all about simulating in your head what it must be going on inside her emotion system that causes you to experience, if you do, powerful emotion in that movie. So that can totally happen, but it's not necessary. So how does this differ from reading a book? So one of the things that's shocking is how little it differs. So in our work in the lab, one of the things that um, we've been interested in is a hypothesis that underlying our comprehension of the real world and of movies and of stories we hear from our cousin and of stories we read in books is a common representational format. We call it an event model. And the data are coming out surprisingly strong in favor of that hypothesis. So, um, so for example, if we track how the brain responds over time to changes in things like spatial location, characters, objects, goals, the pattern of brain changes over time in response to those changes is very similar whether you're watching a movie or just reading a story one word at a time on a screen. And um, we think that at the center of our understanding of everyday activity is this common representational format that originally a lot of it is shared with lots of other species in the mammalian taxa. Um, And it's somewhere along the way we and probably several other species developed an ability to run this thing in a kind of offline mode. So most of how we represent events comes from our evolutionary history representing real events in the world. But as we developed it, more sophisticated means of communication, it became adaptive to be able to allow other people to drive our event models through language. Um, and originally this was oral language but then when we start figured out how to write, all this just carries over to writing for free. And it probably mostly carries over to movies for free because it's the same visual and auditory processing mechanisms that we use to understand the real world. Okay, so when it comes to feelings like hating sharks, uh, hate's an incredibly strong emotion. Uh, love's an incredibly strong emotion. Empathy seems a little more ambiguous. And yet... I may not feel the same empathy as I'm walking down the street and see a homeless guy as I would watching someone on the screen where I'm suddenly immediately connected with this individual in fiction, in make-believe, who has nothing to do with me, who's not right next to me and breathing the same space. What is that? Yeah. I mean, I find it bizarre how strong our emotional responses to people in film can be especially given how feeble our emotional responses to real people can sometimes be. But it has to do with this junk food point that I was making before, which is that films allow you to exaggerate features that, that tickle this mechanism in ways that real life can't. So It's the emotionally manipulative John Williams score. That's what it is. <laughs> so the music definitely matters, but even if it's silent, you know, um, if you're walking by somebody on the street and and you have a reaction that that that's aversive to you, you can just walk the other direction, look the other way. You can um, 
And those are powerful ways of regulating your emotion that we take advantage of all the time. In a movie, the viewer control, the, sorry, the director controls a lot what you're looking at, right? You can always close your eyes. You can always look away from the screen. But if you're looking at the screen and there's a 20-foot high crying face <laughs> on it, like that's the only thing to look at. Um, and, and so there's, that's going to drive those visually guided affective responses often more strongly than a real-world stimulus could. Okay, so that, well, let, well, let's talk about music then, because I think music's a really powerful tool in film. And I know a lot of filmmakers try to hide the score almost. Uh, this old idea in filmmaking theory that if you notice the music, then the filmmakers failed. Um, but at the same time, it seems to work very well on a subconscious level, even when they try to do that. Yeah, I mean, so there are some aspects of the relationship between movies, between music and emotion um, that require very little learning. They're very robust cross-culturally. So like the difference between a major and a minor key in music reliably produces differences in affect in a way that's really very robust. Um, and then there are other parts that are more learned, right? So we get experience with different kinds of music and we learn maybe to associate some kinds of timbres or some instruments with, um, with particular affective responses. So it's a combination of these things that are pretty well baked in like tempo and um, harmony and other aspects like maybe timbre um, and particular phrasing and orchestration that, uh, that, that we acquire with experience with different kinds of music. I'm speaking today to Professor Jeffrey Martin Zacks about the effect that movies and books have on our brains. After this, we'll be talking about how something like the Superman theme can affect different people from different parts of the world in the very same way. Don't go anywhere. This is Bookmark on BFM 89.9. I'm Umar Paganampaki Pagan, and this is Bookmark. My guest today is Professor Jeff Zacks. He is talking to me about our brains and how they respond to popular culture. Different people from different parts of the world, Malaysia, Africa, America, Europe, have different notions of what keys trigger what feelings uh, with regards mm -hmm. to music. But at the same time, I think the pervasiveness of American popular culture, for example, may have wired our brains in a certain way. That when we hear the Superman score, we feel this way. Yeah. We feel this sense of this soaring nature. Yeah, I mean, I think both. Of, yeah, I think both of these things are true. So, um, you know, part of the um, of the general response across cultures that you get to the film scores is learned and part of it's innate and now like parts of it are really deliberate and conscious right so blockbuster films expensive films these days are designed by multinational corporations with not just an audience in the in one country in mind right and so they do things like um in, like like 
commissioning mul multiple versions of the score that are tweaked differently to appeal in different places. Um, even shooting footage that's going to be in, in a version for release in one country but not for another country specifically because they know that some elements are going to be appealing in one country but not another country. I mean, the um, I often say that you know anybody who can make a great commercial film knows a bunch of psychology and neuroscience that I, as a scientist, need to get my hands on because I mean, these folks, you know, they're big dollars at stake and they know what they're doing. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, sure, there are some easy gets, low-hanging fruit. When you're making a movie for China, for Asia, you know how to invoke a certain reaction. And Hollywood seems to be doing it really, really well right now uh, from the very basic level of casting a local person in that film. You know, that's going to pull in a bunch of crowds because that sense of familiarity of what we see on screen. And I guess the whole diversity debate that goes on in America with uh, young girls watching female Ghostbusters and then getting excited because they're seeing versions of themselves on screen. And but I guess it's the more complex stuff that is truly fascinating, because what do you say to this sort of active coercion and manipulation? What does that actually do to our brains? Yeah. So, I mean, I think storytelling is powerful and powerful things can be dangerous. So. You know, in Flickr, one of the things that I spend a chapter on is propaganda and the reshaping of memory. And one thing that we should all be aware of is that our source memory, our ability to discriminate where we learned a piece of information is not very good. And this makes us vulnerable to manipulation. So, um, so so, for example, suppose that I see a film that I know is made by a company or a person with a very strong point of view. I might be quite skeptical at the time that I'm watching it and be actively trying to track what, you know, suppose it's a historical film and I think that the person who made it has suspect motives. Um, and that they're trying to rewrite history. I might be skeptical and really watching out for places where they're fudging the truth. But come back a month later or two months later and ask me to discriminate for a given fact, whether I got it from that film or from my college history text, and I'm not going to be able to tell you. I'm just, our brains are not built to discriminate very well between like what my cousin told me about how the last hunt went and what I saw myself at the last hunt. Um, over most of our history, there hasn't been a lot of pressure to keep those things straight. And so we're just not very good at it. And that makes us really vulnerable to that kind of manipulation. Which brings me back to Sharks. Because if Jaws was the first movie I saw, and yeah. if it was my first experience with Sharks, it's going to linger. It's going to have left this lasting impact, more so with a musical score that was designed to scare the crap out of me. But, 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 what then does it take? to change that? I mean, does it take me actively watching National Geographic channel? Yeah. So, well, when it comes to, I mean, if you develop an honest to, to goodness fear of sharks that is debilitating in your life, 
the good news is there's like really good, simple clinical interventions to address those kind of anxiety disorders. So, um, basically, you know, there's, there's simple exposure therapies that work, um, to help you get over the fear. Now, if you have a completely messed up knowledge about sharks, because you realize, you know, I can't discriminate what I think is true about like, is what I think is true about sharks because of what I actually learned from reputable sources? Or is it all this lingering stuff that I inferred while I was watching the Jaws movies? Um, that's harder to fix, but it, it is fixable. You know, if you go back to the real information and actively compare it with your beliefs, and the best way to do it is with by pre quizzing yourself. Basically, if you know, if you can go to get someone to ask you or go to a, uh, a book that has a, you know, has questions like, okay, so, um, you know, do sharks remember past attackers and go after them, you know, and then you, you think to yourself, well, do I believe that? And you write down an answer and then you get the real story, which is no, not at all. They don't have those kinds of brains being forced to put yourself on record for yourself and then be corrected. That's a really, um, valuable way to correct mistaken beliefs. I get tremendously annoyed every time someone goes, calm down, it's just a movie. But clearly it isn't in the sense that these arguments about the way movies affect us because they seem to be, they, they seem to hit us on such a visceral level. Yep. And I would think even more so than books because it's more of a slow burn with literature, isn't it? You you actively have to make a conscious effort to finish the book. You've got to be really disciplined to sit through these 300 pages. But with a movie, it's an hour and a half. It's two hours. It's instantaneous. It's in your face. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Martin Scorsese has this great uh, line. Um, he says... Uh, He's reacting to the same thing of, oh, it's just a movie. And he says, you know, I, I think to myself, that's just a way of avoiding the power of cinema. Of course, it's not life. It's the invocation life. It's an ongoing dialogue with life. And practically speaking, we spend billions of dollars uh, as a world economy on this stuff every year. So this is, this is economically important. It's psychologically a large part of our mind share. Um, Movies are really important. And I would say more broadly, what's important to us are stories. And it can be stories told around the campfire. It can be stories read in uh, literary fiction. Or it can be the, you know, the myths of our day, which are mass market cinema. Okay. A couple more questions. I got to know about, I guess, the future of cinema. And I'm going to start with what we have right now, which is, I guess the most we get in cinemas is 3D films. And 3D kind of triggers different parts of our brain and we interact differently to these things. Now, watching a 3D movie, is it that different from watching a regular movie on a cognitive level? The short answer is no. So let's just start with the term, right? 3D, short for three-dimensional. And that's actually a a total misnomer. One of my little hobby horses is that all the movies we watch are in 3D. So there are many, there are many cues to depth that our visual system uses. There's occlusion. So the thing in front hides the thing behind it. There's perspective. There's motion parallax that if you, so say you're, you're looking out the window of a car 
the things that are close to you move fast across your visual field as you move. The things that are far away move slower. So there's about 10 to 14 cues that, that are strictly, um, that depend only on one eye that tell us about depth. And then there's this other cue that depends on two eyes called stereoscopy. And so what 3D movies are is they're stereoscopically presented. That means they present a slightly different image to the two eyes. And that discrepancy replicates or exaggerates the discrepancy that we see when we watch things that vary in depth in the real world. Now, having said that, stereoscopy is a super powerful cue to depth, and it produces a really neat effect. Um, and it definitely exaggerates the the experience, the immersive experience of a film. So that's what 3D is. Now, um, filmmakers from the beginning have experimented with other ways of augmenting the cinema, ex the cinema experience. And lately, that's come to be called 4D, which is even more of a misnomer than 3D, but let's just roll with it. Um, so what 4D cinema means these days is adding things like um, stimulating your vestibular system, which senses acceleration, by jiggling your chair, um, blowing wind over smells. you, putting smells in. Right. So all of that together is called 4D, and there's pretty cool technology. So you can now annotate a film with a score, a digital score that describes all these other effects. And then they can roll that out to a bunch of theaters and everybody, instead of having to have some tech sitting in the back of the, each theater, you know, um, uh, running the bellows and pumping the sense in, which is what they did way back in the 19 teens. And, uh, you know, there's Shakerama. I mean, there are all these technologies, but now the fact that you can automate it and put it on a score and make it consistent and have equipment that's rolled out and it's the same in lots of different theaters and a score that keeps it consistent is, is pretty nifty. I haven't seen great growth in that sector of the market, um, but um, you know, it could catch on at any time. One of the things that's striking to me is the stereoscopic projection, 3D, you know, has seemed like it was going to make it like four times. And it never quite seemed, even this last wave, I was sure this was going to do it. And now I'm reading that it's peaked. Yeah, it's peaked. Uh, people just don't pay for 3D movies anymore. I don't know what that is. And, and I don't know if it's just a cost issue uh, because people just feel, ah, it's like 10 bucks more for the same thing. Or whether they're just unhappy with the technology, that it's just not a great experience. I think, you know, it adds something, but not enough that it's really driving people's choices about, you know, whether to see it in this theater or that theater um, or, to, or to pay the extra money for it. Um, and I just think that speaks to how powerful all of those other cues that are there in all the movies are, right? So, you know, high-resolution video and, um, and sound is a really powerful way to tell a story and it you know so i don't think it's it's necessarily denigrating depth cues uh stereoscopic depth cues to say that these other cues by themselves are pretty intense so i'm going to bring it back to sharks and scary things before yeah. we go but i could develop an irrational fear of sharks based on a movie i saw i could also develop an irrational fear of t-rexes based on jurassic park but one i know is 
completely unreal because it's extinct. And yet the other I know is animatronic, but yet it still seems to trigger some fear element. So why isn't my brain capable of this of making that distinction? Well, some parts of your brain are, right? You just told me that you know that one of them's one of them is a uh, a species that's still uh, on the planet, and another one is it, is it as simple as but, that? Is it just the fact but that those, but those parts of your brain are not connected to the parts of your brain that give you the shivers? So that so that Chucky doll, I know, mm-hmm. is not going to come to life and stab me, but the rational but you check that I do, I do, bed, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you know, and we can with effort build top-down connections between those two we can talk ourselves into things and out of things but it's by no means necessary to have a strong vivid emotional experience that it be tied to any kind of rational inference so jeff one last thing what's the one film that's affected you in a big way. I got to know. I got to know. Is there any one film that's affected you in a big way that, you know, as a grown-up male, you still, you know it's irrational, but it still gets you? Um, And I get this question a lot. Um, And and I should have like a pat answer. And I don't actually give the same answer every time. So I'll give you two very different answers. One is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. and, the, and these are both films from my, from my adolescence, Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Eraserhead. So there's two very different films. Uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off because it gave me a lot of insight into what's funny and what's sad. And Eraserhead because um, it showed me that things didn't have to be pretty to be beautiful. And that transformed my aesthetic sensibility. That was Professor Jeffrey Martin Zacks. His book is called Flicker Your Brain on Movies, and it answers other questions like why we duck when the jet careens towards the tower in airplane, and why we tap our toes to the dance numbers in Chicago or Moulin Rouge. It is an engaging and fast paced look at what happens in our heads when we watch a movie. You've been listening to Bookmark. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.